around here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery, a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. We made it. Star Trek is finally over. <laughs> the last episode of Star Trek. Wow, that's how you're putting it, huh? <laughs> well, I don't know. Season three of Disco has been indefinitely postponed. Yeah. We know why. We've been in the room where they record the music, and they, they record the music like a couple weeks before the episode comes out. The, the space where they record the music is a great big space for an orchestra, but it is not so big that you could stick every bassoon player six feet apart yeah. uh, and, and still have room for everyone that needs to be there. I bet that would sound weird too, right? Yeah. Like they, they like put people in positions and mic them in such a way that I think that we would notice that something was strange about the music if they recorded it not in that space in that way. I bet it would be exceedingly difficult for a friend of the podcast, Jefferson Russo, to conduct such an orchestra like in the round, you know? Mm. Has yeah, anyone like, ever done that? All the podcasts that I listen to are basically people yakking at each other and making dumb jokes uh-huh. kinds of podcasts. Sure. The kind of podcast this is. And <laughs> this, honestly, like coronavirus is the briar patch for us. We are used to recording remote and editing it and making it sound really good after the fact. And so many podcasts are unaccustomed to this and yeah. contending with the lag of their Zoom conferences for the first time. Yep. They don't know they don't know about turning off the video so that the audio isn't as laggy. This this might be our time to shine. <laughs> I know. This really distinguishes our show from from many of our favorites in a strange way. It feels yeah. very related to the party question you get asked by someone who's interested in doing a podcast and then the person you give that advice to goes and and does none of it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> You're like, wow, you uh, we're not taking notes. There is a reason to edit the shows. The Jeff Russo conducting a Zoom conference of a bunch of oboists, though, would yeah. be pretty funny to see. <laughs> you know what a challenge it would be to compose an orchestra one-on-one like i I suppose Mm -hmm. it would be a lot like doing it in garage band you're just doing individual instruments and right and putting them all together god yeah that that can't be the level that they're considering at this point but i guess if you have a production schedule to hit you're willing to sacrifice uh some things i mean that's that's like tying one hand behind your back as a as a conductor that's like that episode of Seinfeld where the maestro's baton gets bent because Kramer uses it as a pool cue. <laughs> that's what that's like, Adam. It's exactly like that. <laughs> and in in many ways, that episode was very prescient because this is also a time where nobody is putting on pants until they absolutely have to. I I have continued to wear pants. I'm yeah. I'm getting up at a normal time. I haven't given up, Ben. I may have given up the idea that I won't get this thing, but I have not given up the work uniform that my life requires. We're very lucky that this has been not 
as disruptive to our lives as it has been to many people's lives. But I also feel a little bit left out of the like, yeah, I'm like not really doing anything and hanging out at home all day and like watching tons of movies. I'm like, I don't, I don't have time for that. You got to record Picard episodes. The Uxbridge Shimoda Corporation uh, has no paid time <laughs> off, Ben. Yeah, our, our HR department is not taking the virus seriously. No, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> that reminds me, we need to have a meeting with Robs pretty soon here. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Robs, you got to go. <laughs> we're just circling the wagons here. Uh, we're. we're <laughs> A lot of things suffer without a Rob's, Ben. I think you and I are in agreement on that. I agree as well. I I, I don't want anybody to get the misapprehension that we are actually laying off Rob's. We need Rob's. <laughs> Rob's is the glue that keeps this thing stuck together. Uh, well, I suppose it's time, Ben, to see if part one was held together with the glue necessary to end the season on a high note. Yeah. In uh, in part two of our cliffhanger. Is it possible to build a city on the shaky sand that was part one? We're about to find out as we discuss Star Trek Picard season one, episode 10, Ed and Arcadia Ego, part two. We start with one of those this season on right. Star Trek Picard recaps, which is a uh, a technology very familiar to me as a fan of the Real Housewives franchise. <laughs> is that what they do? Uh, they do. They do that a lot. It's just a montage of slap fights. <laughs> yeah, and you know, people dumping glasses of Chardonnay on each other. Sounds very refreshing. I also got uh, not on the TV version, but when I watched it on my iPad, I got a little. A little blip of Star Trek Discovery Season 3 coming soon. Yeah, I got that too. We get uh, we get our Michael Burnham planting what remains of the Federation flag into an unknown planet. She's conquered it, Ben. <laughs> She's conquered yeah. it in the, in the name of the Federation. Add another star. She's a colonizer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Pre- pretty surprising turn for Michael Burnham. But um, this recap is very... Uh, very thorough, really gets us basically every important story beat. And then we come uh, come in on Narek sneaking into the crashed artifact, the Borg Cube. I like this shot because it reminds me of Captain Pike running up the steps to the Time Crystal castle. Remember that? Like you see, oh, yeah. t- you see Tiny Pike doing the 8-bit video game, climb up the <laughs> stairs, and you say... You see Narek outside the Borg cube, and it's lit beautifully. I, I think this is one of my favorite compositions of the whole season, but Narek was running. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a shot that's a, a type of composition that I always wanted in Star Trek that yeah. was a very occasional thing where you would get like a matte painting of, you know, Kronos or the planet that they're visiting or whatever, but often... Often the uh, the the wide establishing shot was pretty pretty rinky dink in the past, and this is uh, really really beautiful and and establishes that sense of place that and that sense of time too. That kind of like yeah. the the day is getting long and uh, Narek is sneaking into the shadowy cube, and uh, uh, you know he he knows his way around in here. He lived on this cube. He, know, he knows all of these exactly the same hallways 
<laughs> he knows these two hallways. He doesn't need to consult the the mall map telling him where all of the, the different quarters are. Right. He walks right past it and past Elnor and Seven of Nine just like having a conversation about the XBs. Yeah, and Elnor, uh, with the curiosity of a child, asks Seven of Nine, why haven't you killed yourself yet? <laughs> Elnor's great. He absolute candors his foot right in it. Everyone hates him. They have no home. They don't belong anywhere. It doesn't take long before Narek is discovered by Rizzo. Yeah, and uh, she'd like knife to the necks him, which is kind of the way she greets everyone <laughs> in this show. Aside from Commodore O, I suppose. These are her neck-throwing knives, right? Yeah, I think Always so. Always on her person. Yeah. Which is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle with the throwing stars. None of them have that as their, their special weapon, right? Yeah, I think that the, that's more of a Foot Clan weapon, it if is. memory serves. Yeah. I didn't know uh, Rizzo was, was way of the foot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed in this shot, but um, just off focus and uh, in the in the background, you can see Bebop and Rocksteady. <laughs> she, she survived the crash and so did they. I think we are going to be saying this a lot as we run down this episode. I wish we had one more episode of this season because I would have liked to have known what Rizzo was doing to survive in this intervening time. Oh, yeah. And what she was up to. Did she capture and eat an XB? Hard to tell. It'd probably be crunchy because of all the little machine parts in the meat, right? Yeah, it'd be it'd be very stale tasting. <laughs> Once she realizes that it's Narek, uh, they, they have a warm sibling embrace and uh, doesn't stop her from teasing him about going to the synthetic compound and potentially fucking the synths that are there. <laughs> She's like, brother, I know that you're a great stick man. How many of those synths have you have you put it in? And uh, he says, well, I only put it in one of them. And by it, I mean a brooch. And it went into an eye socket. So. Yeah. You can smell my brooch. <laughs> you organics have never given us one. Picard is on house arrest, and they have not put him um, in the jail cell that they built into their compound. I thought for sure they would. That's uncomfortable for an old man, though. Yeah, they put him in Maddox's office, and um, he gets a little visit from Soji, who uh, uses an optical scanner uh, to to get into the room. This is noted by Dr. Gerardi, who's uh, sneaking around and still unsuspected. Um, and, uh, and Picard, uh, kind of, you know, tries, he tries to lawyer Picard Soji, uh, in this scene saying like, you know, like you, you keep, uh, you keep doing exactly what the Romulans fear you'll do. Like maybe, maybe don't be the monster that they say that you are. This episode is full of lawyer Picard. And this is, this is just a taste. Mm -hmm. Just a soupçon, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and he, he makes the case that uh, that a lot of people who are overmatched tend to make, which is, you know what, you just can't give up. You got to use some imagination. It's at this point that Picard hands Soji uh, a pad with what looks like a, a crudely edited together montage of every character on Star Trek Picard singing John Lennon's Imagine. And uh, oh, wow. it does not go well. <laughs> 
not it's not seen as tonally the right thing at the moment. Yeah. And Picard is really embarrassed about it. It's it's not appropriate at that moment in time. Does not have the effect he was hoping. Yeah. Surprising. Yeah. You know? Don't let the Romulans turn you into the monsters they fear. What he would like her to imagine is shutting down the construction of the giant beacon that the synths are building. And we cut to the outside and this thing is like unfolding like, I don't know, like reverse time-lapse crumpled up tinfoil on the roof. Yeah, and we get beacon construction into theme. (laughs) Back at the cube, Narek is packing a small bag and that bag is full of grenades and he's... (laughs) And he's explaining to his sister that uh, if it is to be, it is up to him. He's got to go back to destroy the flowers, and they are going to be a big problem. Maybe not the main problem that the approaching Romulan Armada faces, but he's got to help, right? He just can't lay back in the cut and watch the extermination happens. He wants to be party to it. There's an interesting dynamic between him and uh, his sister, who we come to know as Narissa. Right. Maybe she, maybe maybe they've said that name before, but I, I think they she have. was Rizzo, Rizzo to us up until now. It's a first name, last name. Narissa Rizzo. <laughs> oh, is, is that how it is? <laughs> that is how it is. It is? Yeah. I thought Narissa was the Romulan name and Rizzo was the cover name. I mean... Potentially, I'm I'm looking at her credit. Uh, you're saying that there are people walking around on Romulus with the last name Rizzo? <laughs> oh, I guess that they couldn't be because Romulus is no more. Right. That is the part that I am saying. That's why her last name is Rizzo. Now it makes sense. Um, the dynamic here is really interesting because she's been sort of the project lead on Project Kill All Synths, but Narek is the one that did the work. You know. And that's the case he's making. He wants to take this thing across the goal line himself now that they're so close. She is going to be stuck, you know, back on the cube, seeing if she can get the weapons back online and feels, I I mean, you get the sense that she feels very like, uh, you know, like she's playing second fiddle to him in a way that she never expected and really resents. But what do we know about Narek? Like, he's always been very persuasive, even manipulative when it comes to uh, getting people to allow him to do what he wants to do. So, I mean, whether or not uh, he truly means what he's saying here is a little less relevant than his just ability to get one over on even someone as close to him as Rizzo is, right? Yeah. Is his last name Rizzo too, then? (laughs) Is his name Narek Rizzo? I mean, I'm playing back the conversation, and he's like, Look, sis, we're both Rizzos. <laughs> You're a Rizzo, I'm a Rizzo. So from one Rizzo to another, you gotta let me go out with this bag of grenades. Yeah. R to the Rizzo, and to the Narek. He gets a fun exit to the cube like into the white light that won't be the first time we've seen someone walk into a white light this episode Uh, and he's he's followed closely behind by elnor he has no idea how fucked he really is surely his head will come off before the end of the episode heads are gonna roll that's what we know about elnor uh we get a a slightly comedic scene with raffi and rios on the la serena where they're sort of uh, talking about how to fix the ship. Apparently, the ship. There is only one thing broken about the ship that crash landed on right. this planet, 
and it's uh, something to do with the intermix chamber. And they've got this magic tool that the synths gave to them. I'm not really sure why the synths would give them a magic tool to fix their ship if the synths' plan is ultimately to kill all organic life in the galaxy. I mean, I think they edited the part out where we got a explanation for the Peltzer pocket engineer. This is going to revolutionize traveling. <laughs> he does uh, He does squirt some toothpaste on his face before he yeah. successfully uses it to fix the intermix. But uh, this this thing works. This magic gizmo is actual magic. Yeah. Yeah. There was never a chance that it... That it wouldn't work, right? I say just take this take this dumb thing out of both episodes and have them actually just fixing the ship with parts. I don't think I've ever agreed with you more about anything in my entire life than that statement, Ben. <laughs> I don't I don't understand. Especially because when you take its utility in total, like throughout the entire episode, it could so easily be that. It feels like a an idea that was crammed in from outside of the Star Trek universe. It feels like in order to do it your way, it would have taken longer and they had to cut things for time. And like, this is the thing that, <laughs> that, that makes the story more efficient. We can't just show things being fixed. We can't just show Gerardi come up with an idea and then implement it when it comes to making multiple Lacerenas, like we need something fast and expedient. And that's what the Peltzer pocket engineer slash script device does. Yeah. It, it magically fixes your script. But I also feel like you could have just cutting the scenes that it exists in and, and maybe like rewriting the one other scene that it's in yeah. uh, that they use it, like would have been just as good of a, a fix. Like maybe have... It less of a less of a catastrophic crash landing. Like, why do they need to be crashed to be curious to like stick around on this planet for a little while? That question makes me think that they were already in production when stuff like this came up and they couldn't go back and change any of it. Yeah. Like like they were they were pot committed to story at this point and then had to write their way out. That feels realistic. There is a brief scene between uh, A.I. Soong and uh, Dr. Gerardi where he compliments her on her selfless act. She has committed to dying on behalf of her children, the synths, and uh, she's going to help A.I. Soong with this download your brain into the Golem uh, project uh, before she does. He uh, kind of blows some sunshine up her ass and walks out of the room and then she sort of steals herself to uh, get the the redemption story going. There's a tone here that Brent Spiner strikes that seemed very familiar to me, like the tone that a manager strikes with a subordinate who's like teaching them how to use a mop and bucket for the first time. Like, yeah. all right, now uh, here is the the mopping station in the back of the grocery store. Uh, you're going to want to fill up the basin with the soap and the water. You know, you got to make <laughs> sure like, like there's that sort of tired, not wanting to condescend too much kind of tone to someone he knows is obligated to be there against their will. There's like, there's a math to this scene that I think is really well done. Even though there's not a ton going on, I think that this is good work by Brent Spiner. Yeah. I also, at this point in the episode, 
was still very much keeping the lore theory in play. And this scene made me feel, made me think it was more likely that that was going to be an element of the conclusion. Yeah, you can't rule it out at this point, certainly. Under her breath, uh, Gerardi calls him an asshole or something, the way way every subordinate calls a boss (laughs) as soon as they're out of earshot. Yeah. I'm not their mother, asshole. You think Rob calls us an asshole as he's editing our show? Yes. I Absolutely. I 100% agree. And then he gets the redemption story that uh, he's been setting himself up for. We're both going to be stabbed through the eye by the end of this yeah. project. <laughs> uh, you know you know how jilted boyfriends get into buildings? They throw rocks at the window, Adam. That's right. That's, uh, that's what Narek does here. Of course... His uh, his girlfriend is uh, nowhere around, but uh, Rios and Rafi are are still there. And Narek puts down the rocks and then picks up his uh, his signs. And on each <laughs> cue card, it's got like, "Hey, just want to tell you, I think we should combine resources." <laughs> Next card, I think we should form an alliance. Baby, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, but let's save the universe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Romulans and humans can agree on at least that one thing. Right. This alliance has their first meeting. Like, they cut straight to the first alliance meeting. Yeah. Their first meeting is inside the La Serena, and this is where Narek explains the plot of the show to Rios and Raffi. While Raffi, at the same time, attempts to contact Picard. It's in this scene that Elnor finally catches up to Narek and then draws a sword, ready to kill him in front of everyone. For the first time, somebody emphatically chooses to live. Yeah. Good choice. I very much choose to live. In in Soong's lab, he is downloading the... Uh, final memories of Saga, the synth that got killed in the last episode. And he's interrupted by uh, Dr. Gerardi, who comes in, and uh, she needs uh, some help with the uh, cryptography uh, on some files that she needs to unlock to to complete this Golem download project. With Soong uh, Delegated to that task, uh, she's alone in the room and uh, takes that opportunity to dig Saga's other eyeball out of her head. Uh, the second eyeball trauma of the series. I'm shocked at the restraint of this show at this moment in time, not tilting the camera down <laughs> <laughs> to watch the eye being withdrawn. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it shocked me as well. Uh, there's a couple of moments like that in in the episode, um, this is definitely one of them where I was like, thank you for not <laughs> showing the fingers going in. Right. Cutting back to the La Serena, we get a nighttime campfire scene. And uh, Narek, having been fully invited into the Alliance Club, is emboldened to tell his campfire story. I mean, he's in the he's in the Alliance Club to the extent that Elnor hasn't killed him yet, but Elnor reminds him several times over the course of this scene that that's still on the table as far as he's concerned. Rios is like, you can tell any kind of story you want as long as you don't play guitar. (laughs) And so he does. And what Narek tells them is the Romulan Book of Revelation story. Seriously. Uh, They talk about Ganmadan, which is... uh, where whoa black betty game madame 
yeah, that. Um, <laughs> uh, they talk about uh, like the idea that that the Romulan Book of Revelation is something that actually happened. It's not a fever dream by some Bronze Age wacko. It's 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 the historical account of the last time the synths pulled a kill everyone in the galaxy move. And uh, and that's why the Romulans are so freaked out about it. Um, Elnor comes from a, a secular tradition and treats it as just a, a fairy tale. But Narek's belief is that this is, uh, is history that will soon repeat itself. I was struck by the phrase, the sky will crack when uh, they oh. talk about like uh, opening up the, the portal to the, to the AI domain. And mm. um, that reminded me very much of the image of the shard coming out of the sky in the opening credits of this show. Good call. Reminded me that I had I, I had a like a long odds shard theory because <laughs> when we meet Rios, he's got that chunk of metal in his arm. Right. That did not pan out at all. No, that was that was a, a futures bet by you though. <laughs> those are those tend to be long shots. Yeah, I I, I hedged uh, very well on my on my array of bets on this show, so I, I'm I'm not too upset that I got that one wrong. Good restraint by Narek not proselytizing to the rest of the group. He just tells his crazy story and then lays back in the cut, satisfied <laughs> that he's told it well. Yeah, he's not like saying you do believe me, don't you? <laughs> You realize that the only way to prevent Ganmadan is to come with me on Sunday. Right. And give 10% of your income to the Jat Vash. Narek's more the type of religious that hangs out outside of airports uh, distributing yeah. pamphlets. He works at the Jat Vash reading room in the <laughs> airport. A new and better life awaits you on our distant home planet, Plistonia. We, uh, we cut... So briefly, Ben, to Commodore O. Commodore O gets so little to do in this episode. This is one of the few things she gets. Uh, she's <laughs> she's en route to the planet, and she gets one line of dialogue, and then we cut to commercial. At last, our great work is nearly at an end. What do you think somebody said to her that made her say that? Or like, what was going on on the bridge of the of the warbird when she was she just standing there in in silence and then <laughs> kind of unprompted said at last blah blah blah. If I were at a station on that bridge and I had been working silently, like you know, running the <laughs> scanner or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after like twenty minutes, my commanding <laughs> officer just said that apropos of nothing. <laughs> that would scare the shit out of me. Right, yeah. but I guess You're... everyone on the ship and in the armada, like they're a part of a religious quest. So, yeah. it, so nothing has to make sense logically. I guess so. It's the kind of thing that only a villain ever says, though. You know, that's a "Are we the baddies?" moment for everyone working the uh, the helm and the comms and what whatnot on the Romulan bridge. The cloak and daggerness of Commodore O has been completely drained out of this character. It is, it is one note, and it is this type of thing. Yeah. Anytime one of these Romulan characters puts on their black outfit, they just go like full mustache twirling villain yeah which i don't think we're being unnecessarily hard on it because this is a show that has shown you how to do that well 
We've seen this character do secret mustache twirl in a way that was effective and interesting. And we're only comparing the show to itself. Team Save the Universe has a has another meeting. They just it's it's a lot of meetings early on in the Save the Universe at, project. At this point, I'd want to quit the club. It's just too yeah. much admin. It's kind of like a, a it's asking a lot of my time, and there's no uh, I, I see no path to revenue yet, and I'm just kind of worried that it's it's ultimately going to be a lot of work for nothing. This always happens. You're told all you have to do is pay the dues, and then nothing more is asked of you, and then before you know you know it, you're like working a buffet at some. Yeah. <laughs> At some event that we're hosting. Like, yeah. I didn't sign up for this. This sucks. <laughs> this is a scam. Why do I have a garage full of merchandise? Yeah. Uh, we get the Ocean's Elevenification of the story from here because we get our characters describing the plan and then us seeing the plan go into motion. Yeah, and then back to describing the plan and back to right. the plan in motion a couple of times. Yeah. Um, the idea is they're going to make like they've captured Narek and uh, walk back into the compound with him as their prisoner, offering him as uh, some kind of uh, some kind of bargaining chip to the synths. But secretly what they're really doing is hiding a bomb in a soccer ball that they're going to then throw at the beacon and see if they can knock the beacon out and prevent the destruction of all organic life. How much were you pre-cringing at the idea of Rios kicking the soccer ball into the transmitter? <laughs> I, was, I was like, please do not let this happen. I was, I was very worried about it. Oh my God. Like, like header into bicycle kick into goal! <laughs> <laughs> Just all, all of the synths pull out Vuvuzelas. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was really worried at this moment. I, I, I would say that this is the moment where I was like, this, this TV show started so strong and it is now looking like it is circling the drain. This is catastrophic. Uh, storytelling choices being made because they got, they come into the compound and it's the two bald synths and they have like laser pikes or uh -huh. techno Gandalf staffs or something right. that they like actually cross to prevent them from entering like the fucking pigmen in uh, Return of the Jedi. Like it's, it's so goofy looking and... I think anybody would be forgiven for believing that probably what is going to happen is Rios is going to kick a soccer ball at a beacon. I mean, to play devil's advocate here, Invigorating. do you think this is a show that recognizes that fear and teases you for it? Like in, in not giving you the thing that you fear? Like this is a intentional setup without a punchline. They're, they're putting the corn on the episode early on to toy with me as a viewer? Maybe. Wow. That's pretty diabolical if they are. <laughs> yeah. We cross-cut to Gerardi using the severed synthi to gain access to Picard's quarters. And once inside, she sees a napping Picard with a huge erection. And <laughs> I think this is a, a lesson to a lot of people. You can't just sneak into... A man's room while they're sleeping. Are you sure it's an erection and not just a pants tent? I mean, it could be a pants tent. I know when I get these things and how they happen. When you shoot a sleeping person from this angle, it's just all nuck. It's foreground <laughs> nuck. 
it's, it's a lot of duck. I also noticed that the uh, the accent pillows on Maddox's bed look a lot like the TNG Romulan uniforms. It's true. Yeah, you can get a good rest on a bread basket, right? I wonder if he. I wonder if he killed a Rom for that. Uh, <laughs> for that bread basket material. God, I don't know. Sure seems that way. Where else would you get the material? Where would you get the materials, Ben? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> But uh, at the same time, Soong is in the offices preparing the golem, and that preparation is complete at the same time as Saga's flight data recorder switches on, and he's able to sadly witness her final moments. It's here where Soong realizes the treachery that is around him. Yeah, the the memories of Saga betray Sutra to Soong, and this is this was a a great. Uh, oh shit moment because I really didn't see Soon being on the good guy team in this episode and suddenly he is like he comes and finds the uh, the save the universe club sneaking around the compound and he joins up really quickly having off screen killed the guard since like this this, <laughs> this said it had six dots where where three elliptical dots uh, was what we got right like, what happened? The last time we saw them with the guards, they were asking about a soccer ball, and now they're nowhere to be seen. I think they let them back in. I said, uh, oh, yeah, we'll take Narek to the jail. That's what happened. These synths have the mentality of children. They're so childlike and trusting, right? Which is something that is discussed in the very next scene. All right, that's fair. <laughs> You're saying the story explains what happened before. Yeah. All right. The way many TV shows often do. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that to me. Uh, this next scene on La Serena with Dr. Gerardi and Picard, actually, I felt went a long way toward undoing some of what I thought was bad about the last episode. All right. Because the thing that I just couldn't figure out in the last episode was what the synths wanted, like why they would mustache twirl, why, why Sutra seemed like such a vile evil person mm -hmm. and um and you know i thought maybe it was a lore thing but but what picard talks to gerardi about is like they're they're new the only role models they've had are these two weird <laughs> science loners that, yeah <laughs> that they happened to to know like this is what always happens to people who are raised on a compound right they're like kids that grew up in a cult like they don't have any sense of how like society works and have to kind of Learn it by example. Is it any surprise that they're going through this synthetic rumspringa and and the effects are unpredictable, right? <laughs> their, their, their rumspringa might wipe out all organic life. Right. But that's just a learning experience for them. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly really liked it. I thought like this 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 was the moment where we got back on the rails for me. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the second of a series of lawyer Picard moments in the episode. This is well explained and well done. Yeah, and uh, the goal is to uh, is to see if they can put themselves in between the onrushing Romulan fleet and the planet in the La Serena, and uh, and basically buy them some time so that the synths can choose to do the right thing by seeing Picard do this selfless act on their behalf. That time is very much of the essence because they have six minutes to do whatever it is they're going to do to save the day. 
And so Picard gets in the command chair, uh, turns on the left turn signal, and uh, <laughs> and gets this thing into space, Ben. He he hits a couple of parked cars nearby. <laughs> yeah, he, he unparks by Braille. Yeah. Ben, this episode asks you to suspend some disbelief the way every episode has, and we have not held those moments against the series thus far, but this entire show has taught you how the La Serena works very explicitly, and that is a single operator can fly the ship by using the hollow people. Why weren't the hollow crew assembled in this moment? It only takes a line of dialogue to explain that only Rios could turn them on or off, but we know that's not true because uh, because Rafi was able to gather them together for her interrogation. Right. So I understand how much fun a scene like this is in seeing Picard take command and do the ship stuff, but if that's going to be the case, then, then write in reverse a little bit and start erasing how instrumental these EHs are to the operation of the ship. And this, again, I think is underscoring... The main beef we have right now is that, you know, the way you and I describe our our production schedule as we'll occasionally be on top of production, as in the episode mm-hmm. coming out is the one that we're recording the day before. We never want to be on top of production. It leaves us with very little choice about how and when to do things. But this feels like a show at this moment in time that is on top of its own production. Like, we've already written ourselves here. We can't explain our, ourselves out of a moment where we know the EHs are available to us, but we're just choosing not to use them for whatever reason. I suppose we've seen the one that only speaks Spanish as, like, the gunner. Mm-hmm. Like, we've seen him in the gunner's seat. Have we seen one fly the ship, though? There is an ENH. The navigational hologram. But he does Does he fly? What else does a navigator do? I don't know. I mean, like, there's a big difference between reading a map and parallel parking, Adam. <sighs> All right, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. But, I mean, I think my point is that this is, a, this is a pretty big hole to drive the La Serena through. And while it is very fun... I wondered about the holograms, but I honestly didn't have a problem with that yeah. uh, moment. Okay. Personally, I would say that I was a little bit more surprised in the next scene by the fact that uh, Dr. Soong was able to like Apple TV remote Sutra to be off for the rest of the episode. Why was this device permitted to remain in Soong's hands once the synthetic takeover plan was was hatched? That's insane, right? They just still trust him. Or they didn't know that it existed. Maybe. I mean, Data had a button that you could turn him off with, and only Dr. Crusher usually knew about it, right? It would make sense that anything Sung designed would have that kind of backdoor. So yeah, I guess as we're talking about it, yeah, that does make some sense. It's just so surprising because she is such a critical element of danger in the last episode, and she's barely in this episode, and she's basically in it long enough to be taken off the board. She's dismissed without the kind of gravity that dismissing an end boss usually gets, right? Like the push of a button uh, does not give the satisfaction that that killing the end boss usually does. She's one of those villains that it seems like an end boss early in the game, but then later in the game, they're just 
troops that you're fighting right. through all the time and, yeah. and your character has gotten powerful enough that they're not as big a deal anymore. You know better than we are. Uh, the team uh, springs into action. Uh, Elnor and Narek start Star Trek fighting all the synths. Uh, Rios opens up the soccer ball and Narek is like, oh, cool, I have a cube version of that. Uh, <laughs> the bomb is inside, but Soji actually catches it and like impossible throws it into the air. Hey, Ben, are Soji and her sister the only synthetics with super strength? Because they should lose this fight if they all have that strength, right? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe Soji and her sister were because they're the ones that were uh, queued up to go into the human world. They're behind enemy lines. If you gave all of the synthetics on this planet super strength, they'd destroy all their soccer balls, right? Right, yeah, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd field a team and just kick holes in the balls. Right, yeah. Um, I don't know, yeah. I mean, Data had super strength, but... Uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like Narek and, and Elnor are like doing great in this fight, right? Yeah, that's fair. Not as many heads roll here as I was hoping. Yeah, but the bomb goes off in, in the atmosphere and fails to take out the beacon. So uh, the plan does not go well. There's that pregnant moment where Rios holds the ball and you're like, do not bicycle kick that ball, Rios. Don't fucking do it. <laughs> oh, man. If he bicycle kicked it, I would have just walked away from the TV and not even recorded this episode. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Wow. You know what? I would have done it by myself. Speaking of Star Trek fights, on the cube, Seven of Nine finds Rizzo, and specifically the girl Rizzo. Right. <laughs> Thank you for being specific. Ben, they get into a low-rise pants fight here. Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems yeah, the, very hard to fight in low-rise pants, especially with all the kicks they're doing. A lot of kicks, but uh, but no midriffs, to their credit. They, yeah. they, they keep tucked for yeah. the entire thing. This Star Trek fight begins as uh, Gerardi and Picard get up into orbit as the Romulans come out of warp in their giant fleet of ships. And uh, General O, uh, no longer Commodore, right. uh, starts to uh, warm the ships up to sterilize the surface of the planet. One of those like total overkill moments where somebody's like, well, they're all in this one little place. And she says, sterilize the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when all the, uh, all the orchids start coming up off the planet's surface. And um, we get a... Uh, Pretty great-looking space fight between the flowers and the Romulan ships. It's like it's one of these things where I'm like, I'm not really sure why orchids, like what the what the idea behind it was, but for these visuals, I I felt I felt like this was like kind of a great moment, and just in terms of just like what a what a spectacle they came up with. Here. Yeah, I agree. I think this scene plays off of maybe an instinctual feeling that human beings have, like an ocean full of jellyfish feeling very dangerous, hmm. but also beautiful yeah. in, in the way that this scene looks as we experience it. And then I thought, it's birds fighting flowers. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Wildcat. <laughs> Rizzo and Seven uh, continue to fight and talk shit, and 
the climax of this fight is Seven kicking Rizzo off the balcony. And then we get a looped piece of dialogue, which is this is for Hugh, giving Seven her hero moment at the end. But they don't give Seven the hero moment because if it really was one, we would have seen her deliver this piece of dialogue. Like two... Rizzo's face right before kicking her off. Or or peering over the balcony or something. Hmm. The looped effect of this, I think, deadened what was uh, supposed to be a really triumphant moment. Like, I love Seven in this episode and in this series, but it didn't hit as hard for me as as I was hoping, and I think it was because it was looped. I wonder if they had that and they took it out to give more weight to her conversation later with Rios. I wonder. Yeah, yeah, because if you give her too much satisfaction in this moment, it would deaden that insight that she has later on. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe I, I definitely noticed it. It, it. it does it does like break action movie math to have her say it after Rizzo's already, you know, tumbling down, but not when Seven is like in a in a single. Where's Hugh's body? Oh man, it it was probably one of the bodies that was just lying around when uh, when the cube crashed, right? You can't bury a body on a Borg cube. Maybe that's what Rizzo's been eating for the last couple days. Gross. <laughs> In orbit, uh, aboard the La Serena, Dr. Gerardi is uh, suggesting to Picard uh, doing the Picard maneuver, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which uh, I realize is kind of what Narek did in the previous episode when he uh, right. when he f- faked like he was in two places at once. So, <laughs> so Picard is like, no, Gerardi, we can't do that. That happened last week on the show. We have to do something else. Their conversation felt so familiar to me because what Gerardi is doing is describing something the way a mom would to, <laughs> a, to a child and just getting it wrong, right? Like <laughs> the mom is explaining the child's interest to the child and, and the yeah, child's yeah, yeah. like, mom, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. You're slightly wrong in every way. You've never played Pokemon and it's never been more obvious. <laughs> right. And that's how Picard treats Gerardi here. Like, that's uh, actually not what the Picard maneuver is. <laughs> the Picard maneuver is when I stand up and tug my shirt down just slightly. Right. Big fun here, though, when Gerardi uses the Peltzer uh, pocket engineer <laughs> to uh, to make all the reproductions of her face. Yeah. Good times. Um, Picard blows in a FaceTime call to Soji, who is hard at work uh, with her hologram, finishing up the the beacon. He says that uh, he's got something that he would like to give the synths to uh, to make his case. This is lawyer Picard pushing all his chips into the middle of the table. Yeah, including the, the big chip, his own. Yeah. Uh, he is going to give his life to save the synths and... Uh, it's like right around this moment that the the bird war on flowers uh, goes in the bird's favor. And uh, it looks like the Romulans are about to start Death Starring the planet. And the La Serena shows up with hundreds of syn- uh, <laughs> synthesized magic La Serenas. Another space battle that the Romulans have to get in. They can't uh, sanitize the planet just yet. They interrupt Commodore O's order of... Orbital bombardment sequence number five. 
Ben, I want to <laughs> know a what... Lot, a wanna... lot of different versions of the orbital bombardment sequence. What was one through four? <laughs> <laughs> like, are there different uh, types of planets and, and you, you shoot them differently or... Oh, yeah. You know what? That had to be it. They had to prepare to bombard all different sizes, all different makeups. Maybe. I mean, they're talking about sanitizing. And I was having a conversation with my mom where she said that my dad sings the happy birthday song when he's washing his hands, but she sings the alphabet song when she's washing her hands. So maybe maybe it's something like that. Like it's just achieving the same goal, but different ways. And this is just what, you know, this is the mood that struck General O in this moment. Yeah. <laughs> General O doesn't have any problem dispatching these fake Las Arenas, though, along with the rest of her armada. Like it's only a temporary stalling tactic, really. Yeah. Uh, they're knocked out. The beacon gets completed, uh, despite the fact that Soji has been like, sort of like splitting her attention, monitoring this space battle. She's seen that the La Serena is getting, getting knocked around a bit and seems upset about it, but not upset enough to not open the, uh, the crack in space. This was the moment in the episode that I could think of nothing else besides this being the exact plot from Howard the Duck. Do you remember that movie? Uh, it's been a long time, Adam. Like they align the radio telescope, they shoot the the laser into space in order to open the portal to bring the monsters to Earth. Like <laughs> this felt exactly like that. This is the Howard the Duck plot. You know, Michael Shabon's drawing from a lot of <laughs> inspiration sources, so why not Howard the Duck? Indeed. Maybe you're just the kind of bizarro influence we need. Right when you think all is lost, a just stupendous number of identical Federation starships warp into the space over this planet. And along with this fleet is Captain Riker, who has uh, shaved and combed his hair, put on yeah. a Starfleet uniform. He looks great. He looks great. I think that these ships kind of suck. <laughs> hard agree. Hard, hard agree. I think it was a huge mistake to make them all the same ship because it makes yep. it look like it's just the same thing as what they were doing with the La Serena before. That's the trick. And and because those two scenes happen in such close proximity, you're naturally making that assumption. It's it's kneecapping the show of strength that, that you're supposed to believe that it is. I think also maybe this is partly because on our other hit podcast, The Greatest Generation, we are currently reviewing the portions of Deep Space Nine that cover the Dominion War, and you get so many scenes of Federation fleets that are the kind of scrappy, like like all the ships look awesome, but because there are so many different types of Federation starships in the fleets, they look kind of like right. scrappy and thrown together. And I think that we're being asked to believe that the Federation, which has been a catastrophically bad version of itself for a long time suddenly got it together to put a fleet this big together and the fleet happened to all be ships of the exact same kind and i just uh, you know it should look a little more wolf 3590 you know especially in the events after the construction of the armada that was purpose built to rescue the romulans right that was 14 years prior to this yeah uh like why do they have so many ships of this kind is this the same type of ship that Picard took temporary command of in the prequel book and the comic books? I don't think so. And I think that the line about this is like the best starship we've ever built and you know it 
because you used to be our head of security. Right. Sort sort of sold that to me. Like this is this is the the new hotness, but but there's no such thing as a new hotness if everything is hot. Yeah, I mean, this is this is totally a nitpick. Like, I think that um, the episode works despite the fact that this fleet sucks. But I I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to get past this moment without talking about how this fleet sucks. Their numbers support your claim, though. Like, it would be one thing if if it were twenty of the same class of ship, but it's. 250 of the same class of ship. Right. It's like enough ships to easily have a fair fight with the Romulans. Right. Right on cue in this uh, in this moment, Picard's uh, brain ailment kind of goes into hyperactive. It, it hasn't really seemed to be much of a factor in the in the season up until now other than just you know, setting the table with it early on. Yeah, and it presented as a mental acuity thing and not a physical pain the way that it does here. It uh, it seems to suddenly be a pretty major problem. Uh, he convinces Gerardi to give him something to just kind of like push the snooze button on, on this issue, but uh, it's not going to save him. It's just enough to uh, enable him to make one last FaceTime call to Soji to show her the ships arrayed in orbit and how they are, like the Federation is there to protect the synths uh, as long as these synths don't kill all organic life. And uh, and he's a- able to lawyer Picard her. Yeah, I mean, what's in this hypospray is not only not going to save him, it's going to hasten his demise. Like, that's that's the agreement. Yeah, but it's a it's enough to save the synths because Soji smashes the control panel of the beacon, which shuts it down. This is another moment where the camera didn't pan down. I wanted to see that. Yeah. I wanted to see the table just crumble under her fist. Yeah, give us the satisfaction of the of another broken glass table. Because we've been like we've been seeing the like tentacles coming through the hole. Boy, <laughs> like. They suck probably more than the Federation fleet in terms of design of bad guy. Are we drawing a straight line between the show and Discovery and the idea of control and future machines and future AI with a glimpse through this the space butthole? I don't know, because they say that they live outside of time and space. They looked borgier to me than, than yeah. anything. Yeah. If they live outside of time and space, why do they need someone else to open up their portal? Why can't they just come whenever they want? We will only come when asked. And if the hole is closed, we'll we'll, uh, give up and go somewhere else. Yeah. Like, we don't care that much. (laughs) That's that's the Uxbridge Shimoda promise about uh, going to conventions. And it's also uh, our personal experience in the bedroom. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, everybody has been on this uh, on this FaceTime. It was a group FaceTime. So Commodore O has been monitoring the conversation with Soji and Picard and Riker. And uh, Riker says like, all right, well, uh, now that that's over, would you like to drop it all and uh, head out of here? And Commodore O, seeing that the hole in space has been closed, uh, is satisfied that uh, she doesn't need to do her evil plan anymore. Yeah, and that's it. She pieces out. She takes her fleet yeah. out of range, and then Riker and Picard have their moment where Riker explains why he's there, and then he <laughs> takes his fleet away. This 
like both giant armadas leave this planet alone in a matter of a couple of minutes. Why was Riker in such a hurry to get out of there? I don't know. Especially because he enjoyed so much what Picard was doing. You know how hot that pizza oven gets. I got to get back there and right. get that thing out. I've got uh, I've got my wife and kid trying to butcher a bunny corn. And, uh, <laughs> you know, those venom sacks can be pretty dangerous. Yeah. If they get that wrong, yeah. we're going to be shitting for a week. Yeah. It feels a little premature to fly away right now. But I almost feel like Picard non-verbally encourages him to go knowing that when the the symptoms set in, he, like, it's weird, right? He clearly is dying, and he knows that he's dying, and his dying moments are with this new crew. Why push Riker away at this moment? I understand from a TV show perspective why push Riker away. It's impossible, I think, to to include him in this. It adds 30 minutes to the show. Right. And, it, and, and would feel redundant with the stuff that is still to come. But yeah, from a personal standpoint, you would you would think that Picard would want to be surrounded by his dearest friends like Riker, who happens to have warped in. Yeah. You know, I feel like Riker's got, you know, a couple more hours to kill before he has to give the ship back to Starfleet, right? I mean, and I've got to believe that the information that passes between a husband and wife has occurred in such a way that Troy has told Riker about Picard's flagging health. And that, right. and that he's close to death. Oh, you didn't see her? She was on the bridge of his ship, not in uniform. Just mm. She was sitting in a terracotta pot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's too bad. I could have used more of her. Yeah. I, you know what I could have used is the fight that Troy and Riker got in as he was on his way up <laughs> to his ship. Troy's like, you're saying that you have 250 ships and I don't get to be on one of them? <laughs> I'm a commander in Starfleet. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? Oh, yeah. That is going to be uh, one cold house he returns to. Listen, Deanna, if both of us leave, the pizza's going to get burned. <laughs> I don't like that I have to leave you to watch the pizza oven. It's just a finite resources thing. God, this is supposed to be Star Trek. We aren't supposed to get uh, Troy having to stay behind to watch the kids. <laughs> Yeah. How do you think it feels to sit and listen to someone whine about themselves all the time? Let's talk about Death of Picard, Ben, because while we've gotten uh, some mileage out of a few of our nitpicks here, uh, I don't think that this scene is without them. But what I do want to say is that when Picard is beamed down to the surface and it becomes clear that his life is circling the drain... These performances are outstanding, and the performances combined with Jeff Russo's music makes this scene fucking tough. Like, you hear Rafi's sobs, you hear that music, you see him go, and whether or not this moment is earned almost feels insignificant compared to just the moment as it is. Like, as it plays out, I found it totally affecting, and it, yeah. it really wrecked me to watch it. I think the test of whether it's earned is whether it works. And right. Boy, howdy, it works. Yeah, I was it, pretty devastated. A, it is a, a really, it's a gut punch of a scene. Yeah. And it goes in a very surprising direction. I was like, all right, well, Adam was right. And then I realized there are like 20 more minutes in the episode. Right. Yeah, this scene was hard for me because I was I was super happy about winning the bet. But then yeah. also, <laughs> Captain Picard dies. 
Right, yeah. <laughs> like You're it, really torn, it, torn hard in two directions. It wasn't worth it. I didn't want to win that bet. <laughs> so our first, uh, our first scene is between Seven and Rios, and this is the we alluded to this earlier. They are sharing a uh, a bottle of hypnotic <laughs> and um, talking about their regrets. And Rios's regrets are that he once again allowed himself to open his heart up to a uh, hubristic old starship captain. I allowed myself to be inspired. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> yeah. He's re-experiencing the death of Captain Dr. Drew through the death of Captain Picard. Mm-hmm. And Seven is feeling the regrets of having, you know, killed Rizzo in, you know, in a moment of hot-bloodedness. Like the, like Rizzo deserved to die, but that doesn't mean Seven feels good about having been the one to to do it. And I thought this was a great scene. A beautiful scene also. Yeah, like the the lighting and the compositions are great. Yeah. But I mean, like really pulls it back into feeling very, very Star Trek-y because that we do give in to the temptation of kicking kicking Rizzo off the off the platform and down into the into the guts of the the Borg cube like was like a fuck yeah moment at the time and in any action movie that goes unexamined but star trek is about our higher ideals as people and like that fuck yeah is the thing that she regrets the most right right it's a great scene that that to me it teased the idea of these two characters becoming very close yeah maybe like most of all in the in the way that she kind of lightens the mood at the end by saying that she wins in the regret category. Yeah. <laughs> the the regrets competition uh, is a very funny idea. We get to see how everyone is grieving Picard's death. We see Elnor and Raffi have their moment too. And God, like Elnor's breakdown was a close second to Picard's death himself, I thought. Yeah. That was really hard. Really r- well acted by by both actors here. Yeah, I agree. Um, we talked a little bit in the last episode about that kind of clangy dialogue for Raffi where she has to say, uh, thanks for everything, JL. Right. And I still stand by that having been poorly motivated dialogue for this character. But these, these scenes felt like extremely on character. I wonder to what extent they thought about adding another clip or two to this montage of like... Riker gets the word in his quarters. Right. And he has to deal with it also. Like, there are many, many, many characters who would feel this kind of loss. Uh, Cut back to Command and Clancy. Like, she's reading the report or or something. Like, I like having become so close with these characters. We get their intimate experience with their grief. But a death of someone of this stature could also invite the reaction from from so many more people. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent that was considered. Superman is dead, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to make the news, right? I bet that reporter's going to feel like shit. <laughs> well, especially when they find out that rumors of his death have uh, been greatly exaggerated. Right? Because the next scene is Picard opening his eyes, and he is in this kind of goth living room. Uh-huh. His own goth uh, living room from the vineyard. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's his space at the vineyard. 
Why would it be his home? That is a great question, Ben. I believe it. I may be wrong, but this was corroborated in a couple of different areas that I read. Like, it's it's Chateau Picard with a paint can shaker accident. Yeah, yeah. a guy that got some uh, some rust-oleum and painted his, his T-top. Now, when you depict in the afterlife, you're going to want to put down two or three coats of primer. <laughs> We're using a, a matte spray-on product that is available at your local home center. <laughs> this will protect it from rust for generations to come. And uh, and who should be there but uh, Commander Data in uh, TNG movie uniform? Right, boy, I thought that Spiner's performance this this last hurrah as Data was excellent. Like it, it didn't occur to me how distinct some of the facial expressions that Data makes are until I saw him do them again in an episode with him playing. AI soon and playing data. Right. But those those little ticks are are there. Like I I think that they're doing some kind of digital effects to de-age him a bit. Uh, but and it looks a lot better to me than the the dream sequence at the beginning it of does. the season. It's super clean. And it's just a great performance and it's a great scene. Like this this scene is about like data has been living in this like in a lunch pail, basically, like they've got him running in simulation like Moriarty. And he's come to this pretty profound insight about human life. Like the the thing that Data has realized in his pseudo immortality is that like the most human thing is to uh, is to treasure the like great moments in your life because they are in- inherently finite. Yeah, it's a pretty great statement. Like such an amazing moment and it's it's akin to the scene from the last episode of TNG, right? Yeah. Like when when he finally gets through all the time jumping and he sits at the poker table, like he finally realizes that he needs to appreciate all the people around him. Right. And it's the same as the end of Star Trek Generations. Like this is a recurring theme, right? Time is a fire in which we burn, like like Picard basically says the same thing to Riker at the end. Like appreciate these times. It's it's a recurring theme and and yet it, I don't think it's ever been as powerfully stated as it is in this scene. Yeah. And and I think the thing that really takes it home as like a big and momentous beat is that Data asks him to uh, to give him the gift of being able to participate in that aspect of humanity uh, by uh, by by unplugging the lunchbox when when Picard returns. The what of this scene is so interesting to me in a way that I think you've articulated really well, but the how of this scene is almost just as interesting because what's happening here is that. Picard's consciousness and Data's consciousness occupy the same unpartitioned hard drive. Like, Picard needs to pass through this space in order to be implanted into the Golem, and that's the only reason they're in the same space together. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. And you never cut to the exterior. Like, you never see the nuts and the bolts of, all right, uh, download Picard into the computer. Now right. now we know they're in the same hard drive. Now we've got to export him into the Golem. 
that would have really like taken some of the emotional impact out of the death of Picard scene if they're like, quick, quick, scan his head. <laughs> well, I had a lot of questions about like what happens to Picard's corporeal body. Like, like, do they bury the body? Yeah, I don't know. Do you treat it as his body if his mind is in a different body now? Like, do you treat it with like, like, do you give it a funeral? You know, like, do, does it? Like the funeral is a th- is a thing that we yeah we think of as necessary to do when a when a a life leaves a body. But if the life leaves a body and goes into a different body, do you like what do you do? This episode suggests an interest in reincarnation by the use of the Buddha and Hindu statues in this in this liminal place that Picard and Data occupy Mm -hmm. but they don't really drill down into the consequences of such a thing because because you never get to confront the body the past body and the future body you never get to you never get the scene where picard meets his grieving friends after they thought he was dead and now they realize he's alive you never get that that climax that you would imagine would happen if you were actually able to to reincarnate well you get the scene of him waking up in the new body i mean sure but but that is a very personal experience versus like there are so many aspects to picard waking up inside the golem that go unexplored and one of them might just be the body horror aspect of this like for a man who very clearly does feel body horror about parts of his life yeah well, one thing we talked about last week was uh, having been a Borg, becoming an android would be potentially a very traumatic yeah. experience for him. But I guess these are not, these are like flesh and blood synths, right? Like Sochi isn't... They're supposed to be indistinguishable. Yeah. Presumably it's like he got put in, onto a new, like a brand new Picard body that is flesh and blood right yeah when when picard wakes up in the golem and then like rises like undertaker inside the tube <laughs> and then like tears jurati and soji in half before <laughs> laying into sung and then we yeah. go to credits afterwards shocking the second season of picard is going to be amazing yeah, how are they going to stop him? What what resources can Starfleet marshal to to keep him from killing everyone? Riker's got to bring the fleet back. <laughs> you know, Riker's fired up a card before. He'll do it again. Yeah. The the end of season two is Riker <laughs> kicking Picard in the chest and Picard flying back into the pizza oven. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> What did I do, Will? <laughs> it's me. I swear. <laughs> You're not Picard. You're not anybody. <laughs> Kick. Relish in your body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we get eyes open Picard, and then we get almost instantly him at a breakfast table getting the instruction book read to him by Sung and Soji. Uh, about his new body. This is uh, you. You're going to age normally. Brain abnormality is gone. You are not immortal. And I, I have a question because we did place a bet here. Does, uh-huh. does the not immortal thing get you off the hook for the, for the power hour? 
Oh, Ben, I think it's worse than that for you. I think that uh, I think that it's very clear that Picard died. He did die. His body is dead. Uh, yeah, but I was saying he was going to be trans transferred into the into the android. I think we're both right and we're both wrong. I think you know what? I think you know what has to be done. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> I don't think so. You think I have to do the power hour too? Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely what I'm saying. God damn it. <laughs> you know it's true and you know you want to do it. You motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, Brent Spiner hangs a little bit on that line about being fully functional in a way that you know is self-aware. Yeah. So uh, how do I work in the penis department? (laughs) They're like, we gave you a a life that it will be roughly the same length as you would have expected. And he's like, I could have gone for 10 more years. And they're like, and we gave you a crank that roughly works the same as your old (laughs) one. And like, I could have gone for another inch or two. (laughs) This this fucking sucks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the low-key reading between the lines of this scene cynically for me was that uh picard as a character gets to last as long as the show decides <laughs> because they could change this programming at any time and sir patrick stewart or a version of him will be obligated to play picard contractually forever as long as cbsc's fit yeah pretty dark huh very macabre. Yeah. Picard has one last thing to do, Ben, and that is he needs to eulogize Data. Yeah, the button on the season. Yeah. Pulling out those isolinear chips for one last time. Yeah. Picard uh, uh, remembers his friend and, uh, and the, you know, the lessons he taught us about being human along the way. Issa Brione sings this version of Blue Skies. No kidding. Yeah. She's a very talented singer. Yeah, I didn't realize she was a double threat. Can she dance also? Oh, you know she can. Fuck. We saw her dance at the party. Fuck, she could totally dance. Yeah. She's a triple threat. Yep. It's true. So we see inside the machine, and uh, the dying Data is tended to by an in-uniform Captain Picard as Data ages... And dies on the couch, and then uh, and then Picard Gollum uh, quotes lines from the Tempest, because you got to have uh, some Tempest in here, right? Throw a little little Billy shakes on there. Has, That's a, a classy way to end a funeral. Has to be done. I thought it was a little bit insensitive that none of the other synths were invited to this funeral, given that Data was their father in a lot of ways. A lot of mistakes made at these funerals. And, like, we know that the synths have a funeral set up at their compound. Yeah, we just saw that in the last episode. Yeah. It's weird. The uh, simulated data and Picard uh, kind of evaporate, and uh, and we just see the, the cosmos stretching out uh, where they were. We cut to Moriarty inside his box in some, like, <laughs> museum going, Hey, uh, you think you could unplug this one over here? <laughs> As long as we're pulling out isolinear chips, guys, anything. I am so bored. Uh, last little moment on the La Serena. Uh, Rios and Girardi smooch. Uh, little hand-holding between um, Rafi and Seven of Nine, which seemed maybe a little bit more romantic than friendly. That's the interlocked fingers always re- mean romance, right? Yeah. Didn't see that coming. No. 
No, why would you? <laughs> it was not set up in any way. Nope. But uh, I guess uh, I guess we'll explore that more in season two. Yeah, we know that there's going to be some action to come, Ben, because Picard is wearing the action jacket mm-hmm. and uh, is pimped into giving the word to get underway. The synth ban has been dropped, so he and Soji are free to move about the galaxy. I guess our first stop is to dick... Dr. Gerardi to prison. <laughs> the That murderous succubus, Dr. Gerardi, will see justice before we're done. <laughs> like, Gerardi just gets to, uh, to wander the galaxy a free person? That's cool. <laughs> I mean, that's very on brand for Trek, though, right? Like, forgetting a crime happened yeah. the episode after. You know what? Nothing could be more Star Trek than that. Nothing. Wow. I liked the credits roll after this. The the end credits of, the, of this episode were done a little bit differently than previous episodes of Star Trek Picard. And yeah, real pretty. Yeah, it was nice. And Jeff Russo's work here and, and that entire orchestra really. Yeah. Did you like the episode, Adam? I liked the season. This episode had a lot of pressure on it to get itself out of season finale jail that it put itself in. Yeah. By the episode that came before. And same writer director uh team on right? It was yeah. Akiva Goldsman yeah. and, and Michael Shabon that wrote uh both uh of these two last two episodes and Akiva Goldsman that directed the last one. The same the same exact team. And boy <laughs> did it work hard. Uh but ultimately like these last two episodes were the ones that worked the least for me this season. It's not that I dislike them or think that they're bad episodes, but uh, they just feel so different in terms of pace and story and tone that um, like when I think of this season, I'm of course going to remember the moments that happened here because that's how the story concludes. But the moments that I remember and enjoy are going to come from the other episodes. I thought it was a satisfying but not completely satisfying conclusion to the season and uh and I'm definitely excited for season 2 but uh I think you and I have listed the many ways that this episode specifically like kind of missed not in ways that that ruin the episode or the season but but could not fully break itself out of prison the way that that we were hoping what about you I feel a little bit differently. I think that, um, to me, the things that missed are, for the most part, pretty small. Like, I had plenty of complaints about this episode, but it didn't feel like the betrayal of the season that the last episode felt like. Yeah, you know, they really were superficial when I think about it. I mean, there's there's problems. Like, there's problems in any episode of... Any TV show you care to point out. Like, there's right. problems in the best episode of TNG. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, that's that's my favorite TV show of all time. And even the very best episode of it is not unflawed. And I think, like, if you think about 10 episodes of TV and one of them kind of sucked and the other nine were pretty great, uh, I think that's a very successful season. Absolutely. And I thought that the kind of conclusions that they got us to the the feelings that they uh evoked and and some of the ideas about humanity and 
hope for the future and stuff that I love so much about Star Trek were were so good in this episode that I have a hard time saying anything but that I really liked it. I can't believe Picard's a golem now. <laughs> That's going to be really hard to wrap my mind around. Do you have to have that like on your driver's license? Like Here's a here's a question. How instrumental is that going to be in Picard's character for season 2? The fact that he is a golem or is is that kitchen table scene from this episode a way to tell us that it's not going to be an issue at all yeah we'll see (laughs) fair enough ben you know what else we should see adam is if we have any priority one messages in the inbox priority one message from starfleet coming in on secured channel adam we have a couple of p1s here the first one is from brandon it's for ben and adam and it goes like this on a recent friendly fire Adam seemed envious of the job maritime pilot. Well, you guys have guided me and probably many others through some treacherous waters these past few years. There may be less tonnage involved, but it is no less significant. Glad to have you at the helm. Hey, that's a that's a very nice thing to say, Brandon. Yeah. Unfortunately, you have some bad news, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> this world is chock full of mines, and <laughs> and they are multiplying at an alarming rate. Yeah, um, I think that that's uh, action in the North Atlantic is the episode that Brandon is referring to there, right? From the hit show uh, Friendly Fire. But thank you, Brandon. Uh, I Adam has uh, has uh, steered me through some treacherous waters as well. I agree. Oh, you so-and-so. Ben, our second Priority One message is from Gold Medallion Leader. It is for all listeners. (laughs) And the message goes like this. This is what I, Ben, and I, Adam, really think about this subject and ignore everything else we've ever said and ever will say on the topic. You paid for your seat, and it's two inches of recline, and you are free to use it. If you try to rig the seat... In front of yours not to recline, you are a jerk. If you get stuck in a seat that doesn't recline, blame the airline. Yeah, Mm. uh, that was a message delivered (laughs) with a P1 gun to my head. Yeah, I saw saw you blinking SOS uh, while you were reading it. Um, I'm just going to say this, gold medallion leader. Uh, Coming from a couple of platinum medallions, your take is bullshit. Boom. Yeah. Hey, hey, send us another P1 when you make platinum, all right? (laughs) Or diamond, even. Because you can't tell another platinum what to do. You could probably tell us what to do if you made diamond, so. Yeah. I've been diamond before. It's fine. Yeah. You still didn't recline, though, did you? No. No way. Yeah. I'm not a monster. Me neither. Never recline. If you're not a monster, and if you have a a message that actually considers the feeling of others, you can take it on over to (laughs) MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron, where personal messages are $100 and commercial messages are $200, both of which, especially now, uh, go a long, long way in supporting the ongoing production of this show, which requires your support to continue. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do. 
When your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth, wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from what am I gonna have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself and Edward Larkin? Edward Larkin. And I am going to have to go with the, uh, with the synths that had the, uh, the Gandalf staffs. That was like the one like laugh moment, I think, in the episode for me that was l- laughing at them, not with them. Uh, those guys uh, just getting stuck out at the at the gate of the compound with a couple of staffs to to stop any intruders from coming in. They got a real shit job. You are a miracle of technology. You were created intentionally and with love. Yeah. And yet your job is guard the gate 
and play some <laughs> soccer on your break time. Yeah. That seems like a type of hell. Yeah. Yeah. I feel bad for those guys. Like, I think those are the same guys that I said maybe maybe were the first uh, two synths that they made. They did bear that resemblance. Yeah. yeah. In the last episode. So, uh, so maybe they're like not as... <laughs> Not as advanced as the other ones or something. But uh yeah, they're they're my Edward Larkins in this episode. Uh I don't know if I'll ever get the chance again to make my Edward Larkin Captain Riker, so I will. And it's wow. for one very specific moment. I think we do a a fair amount of cutting around during Picard's last lawyer Picard moment to Soji. You know, we see Commodore O's react. We see her Picard react. We uh-huh. see Soji react. Uh, and then we see Riker react. <laughs> and Riker's satisfied smile leaning back in that seat. He fucking loves this shit. You yeah. know, he's seen it up close. He lives times. for these moments. Yeah. This is why this is why you can go without pizza for a couple of days. Because you're mm-hmm. feasting on this moment if you're Captain Riker. <laughs> and by the time he pushes himself away from the table, Ben, he is full. <laughs> and he is also my Edward Larkin. Yeah, good Larkin. Well, uh, I think the plan for uh, going forward, we've uh, we've obviously got some uh, some time to kill because uh, Star Trek Discovery is delayed. I think we're going to take next week off with the Greatest Discovery, uh, and then we will be back in uh, the the week after that with our Power Hour season binge recap episode we're gonna binge all 10 episodes and then we are going to drink a stupid amount of beer while recapping it yeah we're gonna take that extra week to watch all 10 episodes it's gonna be great it's gonna be a lot of fun i'm i'm uh i'm really looking forward to the rewatch personal mente me too and we've got uh big fun plans in store for uh the rest of of our time doing The Greatest Discovery. We'll just have to like, know what those are when we come up with them. <laughs> yeah, uh, looking forward to it. So uh, we will uh, throw it over to Rob's from here, but uh, stay safe out there, and thanks for continuing to listen. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Friend of DeSoto and YouTube sensation Adam Ragusia. The Greatest Discovery is made possible by the support of our listeners like you. Make sure the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org join. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag GreatestDiscovery. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you on the next episode of The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.